Well, let's turn together to the Gospel of Luke once more. Luke chapter 10. We will be looking at a story that Jesus told. A story that is very familiar uh, to many of us. The story of the Good Samaritan. But there is a introduction to this story that we may not be so familiar with. So we come to Luke chapter 10 and we pick up with verse 25 this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, that might be a little bit familiar to you, because it's very similar to another encounter that Jesus had with someone that we typically refer to as the rich young ruler. But this is not that. This is another guy entirely. The rich young ruler comes into play down in chapter 18. We haven't gotten there yet. So although this sounds very familiar, it's not that, and we don't want to confuse the two. There's something else going on here. Now, in response to this young lawyer's question, Jesus tells this story. Jesus replied, said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the, that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go, and do the same. Now, the goal of this message is at least to pose this question to ourselves. Is it possible to be men and women of God, men and women of faith, is it possible then to truly encounter the living God with all that such an encounter means in the time and the place and the culture in which we live? I hope to 
challenge you to think that through. Because in this particular time and place in which we live, we are going to be increasingly challenged to live lives faithful to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, to the gospel. So we're going to look at this passage this morning where Jesus challenges this young lawyer to think differently about the nature of religious life, to radically alter his view of the truth of God as it applies to him in the context in which he lives. I want to draw some principles from this story that I hope will cause us to question some of the ways that we ourselves approach this life that we live. The story is a two-part dialogue between the lawyer and Jesus. There is this beautiful symmetry in the way it's written with four parts to each half of the dialogue. Each half of the dialogue begins with the lawyer questioning Jesus. And we find out right away that in each case there is some unsavory motive behind this question. This is what distinguishes this account from the account of the rich young ruler we'll see in chapter 18. Although the rich young ruler eventually goes away sad because he cannot meet the, the demands of Christ, he is at least sincere. Not this guy. This guy, we're told, comes to ask Jesus a question in order to test him. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. In the second half of the account, we're told that he asks Jesus another question in order to justify himself. So this guy has some issues. <laughs> On both occasions, Jesus responds to his question with a counter question. And then in each case, the lawyer answers Jesus' questions correctly, interestingly enough, followed by a final word from Jesus in the first case, do this and you will live, and in the second, go and do the same. So let's walk through this passage together. A lawyer stands up and addresses Jesus as teacher. Now, in verse 25, it specifically says that the lawyer stood up, or the teacher, that, yes, that the lawyer stood up and put him to the test. In those days, if someone wanted to ask a question of a teacher, of a rabbi, they would stand as a sign of respect. Now, if you understand that, you readily see the irony in this, because Luke makes it clear that the lawyer is not coming with any sense of sincerity. His respectful words and posture are but smokescreens to cover his true purpose, which we are told is to put Jesus to the test. He's trying, as were so many of Jesus' adversaries in the religious hierarchy of Palestine at that time, to find a way to get Jesus to slip up, whether theologically or morally, in order to undermine his credibility among the people. And so seeking to put Jesus to the test, he asks him, Teacher, what shall I do to gain eternal life? To inherit 
eternal life is the word that he uses. Now we've already seen the irony in addressing Jesus as teacher while trying to test him. Now we see something else within the question. Because within that question there is an internal contradiction. I wonder if you see it. What shall I do to inherit? What do I do to inherit something? The answer is nothing. Somebody else does something. They die. We don't work for an inheritance. An inheritance isn't something that is earned. It is a good example, actually, of grace. Which is why our salvation and the eternal life which results is so often spoken of in the context of an inheritance. But this lawyer is a good example of what had happened within Judaism at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. They had utterly lost any understanding of grace. That's not to say that the teachers of first century Judaism never spoke of grace. They did. They spoke of it all the time. But they spoke of grace in terms which denied grace. They spoke of having to do things in order to receive grace. We have to obey the law, and then God will be gracious to us. We have to fulfill all the religious rituals of the temple, and then God will be gracious to us. And that, of course, though they use the word constantly, is no grace at all. If you're going to say you have to do something in order to receive grace, you're not talking about grace anymore. You're talking about something that you earn. And so Jesus responds by doing that thing which is so frustrating in our own conversations. He answers a question with a question. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the young lawyer responds with this summary of the law in verses 27 and 28. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer is no dummy. He knows his stuff. In fact, he knows that which Jesus himself teaches. Because Jesus has said this himself before. That the whole law is summed up in these two commands. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And Jesus commends him for his answer. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And all God's people said, what? Careful. <laughs> <laughs> Do this, and you will live. I thought we're all about grace. Isn't that what we were just saying? Aren't we always describing the gospel as justification by grace alone? A couple of weeks from now, when we gather together to remember the Reformation, we're going to be focusing on the what, what, what are referred to as the solas of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the Word of God alone, for the glory of God. Hallelujah. 
How is Jesus then telling this lawyer, do this, and you will live? Well, of course, as we try to reconcile this, there is one conclusion that we cannot come to. We cannot conclude that Jesus is wrong. So we've got to understand this. That, that narrows it down quite a bit. Jesus is not wrong. So what is he saying then? Well, we understand it this way. Jesus is absolutely right. If one would love the Lord God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength and all of their mind, if one would love their neighbor as themselves, they would possess eternal life on that basis. But no one does. If one did all of that, they would, of necessity, be sinless. And if they were sinless, there would be nothing separating them from God. So yeah, one who could do all of that would inherit eternal life on the basis of what they have done. But no one has done that. And no one can done that, do that and done that. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> we are all born into sin. We all enter into this world dead in sin and in need of new life in Christ.
put our minds to it, we could obey these commands from this day forth. Still not enough. Because we've already broken them. And so we need grace. Now this young lawyer is not getting it. He knows the Sunday school answers. But what's going on in his heart? Being very much like we are, he continues to think in terms of works. Apparently he thinks he has the first part covered. Because the only thing he asks about is the second part. Who is my neighbor? This guy is so deluded. He thinks he has loved the Lord God with all of his strength and mind and heart and soul. So the only thing left then is to de define what a neighbor is. Because he, he's thinking, I might be okay with that too, depending on how you define it. So, who is my neighbor? Now, this lawyer would have thought that he already knew the answer to that question. It was very well documented in the literature of Judaism and the codification of their tradition in that time who one's neighbor was. Everyone would have, everyone in Palestine, every Jew would have been able to answer that question as far as their tradition went. A neighbor to a Jew was another Jew. Converts are okay too. You're a Gentile who becomes a Jew, we'll include you in that. But, if I'm a Jew, my neighbor is a Jew. And that is what everyone would have understood. No one outside the faith of Judaism was to be considered a neighbor. In fact, by this time, those outside of Judaism were viewed by the religious leaders of the day as the enemies of God. And as enemies of God, they did not deserve to be shown compassion. If the Jews showed compassion toward a Samaritan or a Gentile, they were working against God. This is the mindset that this young lawyer would have had. This is what he would have brought to the question. Now, remember why he had come to Jesus in the first place, to test him. That's what's behind his question. Who is my neighbor? Now let's see if Jesus aligns himself with all the other teachers, or if he says they're all wrong, tells us something else entirely, and enables us then to pit the people against him. He came to test Jesus. He hasn't come to ask sincere questions. And this is the way that he has found to do that. Will Jesus agree with all the other teachers, or will he declare them to be wrong, and in so doing, anger the religious hierarchy by stepping outside the bounds of what is acceptable? And then, having angered the religious hierarchy, motivate them to turn the people against him. But of course, Jesus knows what's going on. And so he poses another counter question. 
Now, we're not going to get to that counter question until verse 36. Because before Jesus asks the final question of this lawyer, he sets him up. And he does it through telling a story. And as we're recounting the story, keep in mind that the entire story is nothing more than an introduction to that question. Let's look through the elements of the story and try to gain some insight that will allow us to understand Jesus' application of this story in his counter-question and what it means to us. You've got a man, verse 30, going down from Jerusalem toward Jericho. Now that's a 15-mile road, and it is utterly desolate. It was well known as a place populated with outlaws and uh, bandits who would hide in strategically chosen caves along the way so that they could jump out and attack the travelers as they went down to Jerusalem. And in Jesus' story, this is what happens. A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him, and they went leaving him half dead. So he's attacked by robbers, stripped naked, beaten, left by the side of the road, half dead, as it says, which is a euphemism in that time for being unconscious and in danger of dying. His being stripped naked and being unconscious are important details in the story. The normal way people in that culture identify different ethnic groups was twofold. It was in the way they dressed, and it was in how they spoke, their accent or their language. But now this man has been stripped naked, and he is laying there unconscious. In other words, what had been taken from him was any means by which he could be identified. And so, no one who would subsequently come down the road would be able to tell who this guy is. He's been reduced to that most simple thing, a human being in need. Now, Jesus introduces the first of the people who discover this man as they're coming down the Jericho Road. We find out in verse 31 that he's a priest. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest would almost certainly be riding a donkey. That detail is not in the story, but those hearing the story, as Jesus told it, would have assumed it because priests were a part of the upper class of that day, and that's how they would have traveled. And that was well known. This also sets a counterpoint to the Samaritan who comes later, who is also riding a donkey. Jesus says the priest rides down the road, looks, and passes by. He is presented with an enormous moral dilemma. His office requires him to remain ritually clean. Is Going down to Jericho from Jerusalem, probably after performing his service at the temple. Often priests lived in Jericho, 
Uh, there was a rotation of priests in the temple service. They would come to Jerusalem and minister there in the temple, usually for two weeks, and then they would be off the rotation for a while. And that's probably what's going on here. Now, if he comes in contact with a Samaritan or a Gentile, or even more importantly, with a dead guy, he will become ritually undefiled, or ritually defiled, I should say. The religious rules of the day interpreted such contact as coming within a distance of four cubits. So if you come within four cubits, of someone like that. You are defiled. If he became defiled, then there was this extensive purification ritual that he would have to go through. Part of that ritual would require him to be in a place of humiliation outside the gates of Jerusalem, where those coming into the temple to worship would all see him. And he would be identified as an unclean person who was going through this ritual purification process. He's being forced to choose as he passes this man. Will he help this person at the risk of defiling himself with all the humiliation and the cost and time and treasure that that would entail? The Judaic definition of a neighbor provides the priest a loophole. And it allows him to choose not to get close enough to defile himself. Perhaps he would even be applauded for that choice by his fellow priests and Pharisees. So he rides on by. And he leaves the man there. And I would suggest to you that you and I often fall into the same trap. Everywhere that Christianity exists, there develops within that locale an expression of Christianity that becomes acceptable Christian culture. And all sorts of extra-biblical do's and don'ts are adopted around that. And sometimes they're explicit, sometimes they're implicit, but everybody in that place knows them. We know that there are just certain things that good Christians don't do. But the uncomfortable thing that sometimes happens to us is that life runs right up against those rules and then forces us to make a decision. Are we going to step outside those rules and risk what will come back at us from the Christians around us, from the church? Or will we have the courage to do that which God requires us to do? Amen. We're much more comfortable operating within the bounds of set rules. We like to know what's expected of us. What should I embrace? What should I avoid? That's what the priest in Jesus' story was doing. He was prohibited from extending himself to this human being in need. He could not risk the disfavor of the community or any other repercussions that might come in order to love this person. And there's a built-in excuse. Well, as Jesus continues his story, the next thing that happens is uh, that a Levite comes along 
This one is probably walking. He has less money and less prestige than the, the priest did just coming back from serving at the temple as he was. Everybody would have been honoring him for that. The Levite comes to a place where this hurt man is lying. He probably risks getting a little bit closer to see if this man is alive or dead, perhaps. The consequences for defilement are not as stringent for him as for the priest, but we're told that he too goes on by, passed by the other side. And perhaps he's afraid of robbers, and rightfully so. If he stops to attend to this person, particularly if he has no animal to carry him, he can, at the very most, offer a little first aid, perhaps, and hope that he doesn't get beat up by the robbers himself. For all he knows, this is a setup. This guy's not really hurt. He's acting. And then he goes down and he checks on the guy and all his friends jump out at him. He's done. I'm not sure that's his main motivation for moving on. Many who have looked at this particular scene have assumed that the Levite almost certainly knows that the priest is on the road ahead of him. We might assume, as we read through this story, that some great period of time has passed between the priest and the Levite, but the text doesn't say anything like that. In fact, it was customary before starting out on a barren road like this to seek out others who were going to be going along on that road as well, so that you could kind of keep an eye on one another. Your life might depend on knowing who's around you. If that's the case, then Jesus might be describing a situation in which the priest come by, comes by on his donkey, and then, not too far behind him, within sight of the priest, comes the Levite. And so, it could be that the Levite finds his excuse for not helping in the example of the priest. That's what the Levite does. 
He falls into the same trap as the priest. He allows the dictates of the customs of his culture to determine his choices. Now, if you were in Jesus' audience listening to this story, you would be anticipating the next character. You've gone from priest to Levite. Now, who's next? Well, clearly, it's just your typical Jewish layman. That's who must be next. Jesus is just walking down the hierarchy of the Judaic community. Started with the priest, now he's on to the Levite. Next will have to be the Jewish layman, but surprise! <laughs> Jesus introduces this radical twist to the story. The next character is not Jewish at all, but a dreaded, hated Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, there was nothing but hatred between Jews and Samaritans. They were the lowest of the low. They were considered to be dogs by the Jews. They were cursed half-breeds. They were thought to be the worst possible concoction of humanity. The disdain and the condescension that the average Jew had for the average Samaritan was monumental. And yet, here is Jesus making the dreaded Samaritan the hero of his story. He just didn't do that. He could have chosen anybody and it would have been accepted better than choosing the Samaritan to be the hero. But it's Jesus' story so he can tell it as he likes. It was a Samaritan, verse 33, who was on a journey and came upon him and when he saw him he felt compassion. Samaritan comes by, sees the man, and does a series of things that describe a cost and a consequence and a risk as he offers aid to this needy human being. He came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them, he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He kneels beside him, he takes out oil and wine, he binds the wounds, places the man on the donkey he's been riding. That phrase, by the way, his own beast, probably implies that he had more animals with him, perhaps carrying all of his goods. But he placed the wounded man on the donkey that he himself had been riding, which of course is going to force him to walk and then he's going to take him to an inn. And having taken him to an inn, the Samaritan uses his own resources to provide for his care. His own resources, which he has no possibility of recovering. Because no Jewish family would ever consider repaying a debt to a Samaritan. takes the wounded man, takes him to an inn, and 
fine. Right? Somebody else there who can take care of it. You know, take it in, drops him off, and goes on the way. That's not what he did. He stayed there. And he took care of them himself. It is are not what we think of today. This wasn't a nice little bed and breakfast. <laughs> in a full service hotel. Probably barely a roof over their heads. And he took care of them. And then the next day, we can only assume, the next day, the guy has been cared for, he's, he's, he's made perhaps out of danger of at least dying. The next day, he takes out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So he makes it possible for the injured man to leave once he has recovered without himself incurring any debt. Once the injured man recovers, he can just get up and go because the Samaritan has said, listen, I'll cover it all. I'll be back. And whatever expenses you incur, innkeeper, I'll take care of it. So help for the needy comes from an unexpected source at great expense and great risk. Now, interwoven into this story is Jesus himself. Here are the religious leaders of the day. They have all of their rituals, all of their ducks in a row. They know exactly how they live, how to live what they're supposed to do, but there is great need. And the satisfaction of that deep need will come from an unexpected source outside of religious authority. Someone will, at great cost and risk to himself, supply everything that is needed for the rescue of those who are hurt. Hallelujah. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus himself, attested to further by the elements of oil and wine, which were symbols of sacrificial worship in that day. Now as Jesus comes to the end of this shocking story, he finally gets to the question that he's been moving toward. Remember the lawyer's question, verse 29, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks his own question in turn after telling this story in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer has to conclude the one who showed mercy toward him. And you need to hear the lawyer saying that through clenched teeth. Because it's not the conclusion that he wants to come to, but Jesus has left him no out. The last thing he wants to do is say something good about a Samaritan. But he has no choice given the story. And then Jesus concludes by telling him, go and do the same. Now I've mentioned that in Luke chapter 18, we're going to encounter the rich young ruler. At the end 
of that discussion, another discussion about the law and eternal life, Jesus tells him that the only thing he needs to do is to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. That's all. When this makes the rich young ruler sad, as Luke relates the story, Jesus goes on to say to his disciples that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. To which his listeners respond, then who can be saved? And I would suggest that at this point in our story, the lawyer and everyone around Jesus are asking the very same question. That's a question they should be asking. If what it means to love God and to love my neighbor at any cost, regardless of race, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of religious affiliation, if that's what that means, then who can be saved? This whole story begs that question, and the answer is the same one that Jesus gives in Luke 18. With God, this is possible. With man, no. But with God, it is possible. And this story reminds us that the essence of our faith is not keeping man-made rules and rituals and formulas. The essence of it is to love God and to love others. And when we are faced with that, we understand the enormity of our inadequacy. <laughs> then we understand, I can't do that. Yeah. Now what? I can't do that. How can I be saved? And the answer to the question, how can I be saved, is grace. There is nowhere else to go but to cast oneself upon the mercy and the grace of God. When our hearts cry out, who can do this? The answer is, only with God is this possible. Apart from that, I am without hope. I am doomed. But with the grace of God, I am rescued. I am saved. I am adopted as his own child. The radical love for our neighbors that Jesus calls us to reminds us of our deep need for God's grace. We, this is another one of those stories, right? We come to these stories in Scripture and we see a hero. And we always read the story as if we're the hero. <laughs> you know who we are in the story? We're the guy in the ditch. We're the guy who can't help himself. The guy who can do nothing because he's laying there naked and unconscious. And we need someone to come and rescue us. We need someone to save us. The Samaritan not us, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes and does everything that is necessary to rescue us. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. 
why we never get past the gospel. The gospel is how we come into a relationship with God whereby He heals us. The gospel is that where it, it, it is, is that act of God in His mercy and grace which sees us in utter destitution and says, I will rescue you. You don't need to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything. Jesus has done it all. Jesus came and took on human flesh and went to the cross and gave himself in the place of sinners. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. Jesus ascended to the Father where he intercedes for his people. Everything that is necessary, Jesus has done. And we are the recipients of his grace and mercy. We dare not allow ourselves then to be trapped by our own religiosity. Instead, we who have been set free by the grace of God need to go out into the world with that grace, loving those who we're not supposed to love according to the world, and extending to them the same grace which has been extended to us. May God make it so. Father God, work within us to make us a gracious people, a people who love freely, a people who love even when it costs us, because Father, when you loved us, it cost you your own son. Make us like Jesus, we ask, for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the world. Amen.